Um, man, yeah, happy spring. Yesterday was officially the first day of spring, I think, so that's nice. I'm um, enjoying the, the warm weather. I'm um, looking forward to baseball season. Um, yeah, a lot of good stuff happening here. And uh, as we're looking at the beginning of spring today, we are actually going to be closing what we have been preaching through thus far in uh, the spring semester, which is our series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I've had a lot of fun preaching through uh, most of this prayer with you guys, and um, today we're going to be looking at the very end of it. In some ways, today is almost going to maybe feel like one of those days that you have exam review in your class before the final exam, you know, where it's like there's not any necessarily new content, but you kind of just rehash some of the content that you need to know for the exam. That, that might be a little bit more of what we have going on here today, just by the nature of the verse that we're going to be looking at. Um, but there's no exam. I'm not going to give you a test afterwards. Uh, but anyway, let, let's refresh our memory with just what this prayer is that we've been looking through. This is the, probably the most famous and most memorized prayer in the world. A lot of you, if you grew up in church, I'd assume, uh, have this prayer memorized. But we call it the Lord's Prayer because it is something that Jesus taught to us in teaching us how to pray, right? So this is very, very important. Prayer is a major part of the Christian life. Jesus is the one that we worship, and he's the one that taught us this prayer. So we would do well uh, to study it and understand it. So This is what that prayer says in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so as I was saying, this is a super significant thing for us, right? Prayer is one of the major uh, parts of a Christian life. You think about any relationship, uh, communication is a major part of that, right? If you have a relationship that has poor communication, that relationship is probably going to be poor. Uh, Relationships that have good communication tend to be rich. Well, prayer is one of the best ways that God's given us to be able to communicate with him. And so when Jesus taught us this, he said, pray like this. This isn't necessarily saying, this is what you should memorize and say this exact thing every time, but he's showing us the kind of things that we should pray for. And that's great, right? Because Jesus also told us that if we pray in his name, that he'll grant what we were asking for. So when we're doing that, we're trying to say, how do I pray in a way that's in line with what God wants. Well, Jesus is showing us exactly the kind of things that he wants, what we should be praying for. And so we've looked at each of these things in depth over the past several weeks, and I'm just going to briefly run back through those so you remember them. Uh, We started off by talking about our Father, the fact that we can come to God in prayer, this almighty God of the universe. The first thing that we say about him is actually our Father, and that is a monumental thing. Uh, to, to realize that he has that kind of love for you, that he has that kind of intimate relationship that he wants to have with you. Think of how much this shapes your identity when you come to realize that uh, you're not somebody that it, God kind of just tolerates or is willing to have around, but rather that he actually wants to adopt you as his child. We've also seen that God is holy, right? That he's in heaven and his name is holy. And so as amazing as it is that he wants to have this close and intimate relationship with us, we also see that he's very, very high above us. Holy means set apart, different from. We see that he's so much greater than we are. He's actually terrifyingly awesome. And that we should recognize and respect this when we come to him in prayer. 
We've asked your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be people that are praying that God's kingdom would come here. And we've talked a little bit about what is that kingdom. God's kingdom is the place where he reigns fully as king, where where his will is carried out perfectly. And that's why we pray uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire for this world to be completely under God's reign. We ask for our daily bread, right? Jesus knows that we have physical needs. God has designed you with a physical body that he knows uh, is frail and weak and has all sorts of things, not just bread, but shelter and clothing, all this kind of stuff. And this is encompassed inside this idea of asking God to give us our daily bread. Now, a lot of people, this is what they think of when prayer, when they think of prayer, just asking for what it is that they need. And our prayer, as we've seen already, should be way more than that, right? It actually starts off with uh, just praising God and recognizing who he is and desiring what he wants. But also, it is important that we ask God for what we need. He wants you to talk with him about that. And then we've, uh, not only do we have physical needs, but we have very deep spiritual needs. As he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so we realize that not only are we weak physically, but even more so spiritually, that we've sinned against this perfect and holy God and that that separated us from him, that we actually have a debt that we owe to him. And so we ask him for forgiveness and we realize as Christians that we can be forgiven of that debt because Jesus already paid for it on the cross. But as we come to understand that, we also realize that because we've been given grace, we are people that will also show grace to others. And that we dare not ask God to forgive us if we aren't willing to forgive others as well. And finally, last week, Daniel talked about leading us not into temptation, but delivering us from evil. You see, the second half of this prayer, we prayed for our physical needs, we prayed for forgiveness, and now we pray for protection. That God would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That he would give us everything that we need to be able to walk in holiness and stay close to him. Now, finally, we come here to the last part of this prayer. And some people call this a doxology. Um, it's kind of like the bow that wraps up a present, okay? Or uh, the string that kind of ties everything together nice and neat. So let's, uh, this is the line that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, we're going to pray and then we'll dive into a little bit more of what's going on in this phrase. Father, uh, I love to praise you. I thank you for that time that we got to have before this, just uh, being able to lift our hands and our voices to you and singing your praise. God, if there's nothing else that uh, we take away, Lord, if, if nothing I have to say is of any value, I just thank you at the very least for the fact that we get to lift up your name and praise. And God, I pray that um, as we've expressed that with our voices, uh, that we would now uh, show that with our minds, Lord, as we quiet them, as we quiet our hearts and quiet our minds, uh, to be people that focus on you and that focus on your word so that we can understand it, Lord, and apply it. I pray that you would um, just help us to be people that listen well today and not just listen well, but also apply well. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I preach your word. And God, just let me say exactly what you want me to say today. We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so as I said, the ending of this prayer is what some people might classify as a doxology. You might have heard that word before. Uh, but a doxology is simply a short little statement of praise that gives glory to God. Okay? You'll actually see several different things like this throughout Scripture that kind of just... Uh, short little phrase that's singing some sort of praise to the Lord. 
Uh, the word actually comes from two Greek words, the first one being doxa, which literally means glory, and then logos, which means either word or speaking. And so doxology means that you're speaking glory, and that's exactly what this statement does. It's speaking of the glory of God. And so we started this prayer by recognizing the glory and greatness of God, right? That's all the first things we talked about. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And now, as we, we, after we pray about our needs, we return back to this, lifting up the name of God and, and speaking of how great and glorious he is. Now, if you're reading this in your Bible, you might have even noticed it in what I had on the screen. Uh, it might have brackets around it. Or depending on the translation you're reading, it might not actually even be there at all. Uh, you might have like a footnote or something where it's in the margin. Some of yours might not alert you to this at all. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with this, but I do think this is important because as your pastor, I want you guys to be reading the Bible on your own. I want, I want you to know that, okay? Like my hope and my prayer for you as your pastor is that this time when I preach the word to you is not the only time that you're getting the word throughout the week. Matter of fact, I believe that if you really want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you're going to have to be in his word very, very consistently. And so when I preach, my goal is never just to make you feel good or whatever. I hope you learn something. I hope I do those things. I hope the Lord works through this time. But one of my, my hopes and dreams and goals for you is that I'm helping you learn how to engage with God's word. All right, so sometimes you're going to come across things like this where you'll see the, the brackets or it's different in different translations. Maybe it's even missing somewhere. And I want you to know what to do when you come across something like that. Um, now, let's just look at the essence of what our Bible is, right? We call it God's Word, but sometimes we don't necessarily understand everything that went into the process of making that Bible available to us in the form that it is. Uh, it seems modern, you know, just because it's printed nice and has good grammar, that's modern English, and uh, heck, a lot of us read it on our phones now, right? But we can forget that this is actually a compilation of very, very ancient documents that are thousands of years old. It's extraordinarily rare for us actually to have any document that's as ancient as the Bible is. We have some other ones, but to, to have the Bible the way that it's been preserved with as many copies of it that we have is actually really, really incredible. With that being said, we actually don't have the original manuscripts for uh, any of the scriptures. So take the Gospel of Matthew, for example. The actual piece of paper that Matthew himself wrote we don't have that copy, okay? We don't know what happened to it. Uh, the oldest copies that we have, we, we can't date quite back to that time. Now, the good news is we have a lot of copies of what Matthew wrote. Um, most of these copies, they're all very, very similar. But remember, back then, they didn't have uh, the printing press. They didn't have Xerox copiers. They didn't, you know, anything like that. So if you had an important document that needed to be distributed, what would you do with it? The only way that you could copy it is by taking a person that goes by hand and copies out every single thing word for word. It's a painstaking process. Now, the scribes that did this were actually really good at what they do, but they weren't perfect, and occasionally they would make mistakes, which is why you'll get variants between some of the original Greek manuscripts that you can read. Um, now, the vast majority of the time that we get variants like this, there are, they're very, very minor, okay? It might be things like a misspelling or a grammar mistake or, or something like that. Every now and then, though, you get a variation that's a little bit larger, which is an example of what we have here, like an entire sentence that might be missing in one of them. Now, when this happens, we have to do our best 
to figure out what the actual original manuscript said that Matthew wrote. Now, it can be hard to do this, right? There's a chance that the longer version that I'm using here is correct, the one that has this last sentence in it. There's a chance that maybe the copyist uh, for some of these other ones just missed that. Maybe his eyes were getting tired and he kind of skipped over it. He may have skipped over it intentionally. We don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, some of the manuscripts don't have this. Um, there's a chance that the short version is actually the right version and that this got added in later by somebody else that kind of wanted to tie up the prayer nice and neat. Unfortunately, we don't know for sure. Um, when you get this, generally what you do is you try and go with whatever the oldest manuscript says, right? So a lot of time we think newer is better. When you're talking about biblical manuscripts, older is better, right? The closer I can get to the source, uh, that the more likely it is that that one will be accurate. So the two oldest manuscripts that we have for Matthew don't include this last phrase here. And that's why some of your Bibles uh, might have it uh, in brackets. Maybe they don't even include it because they're saying, hey, we're not sure that Matthew's original manuscript actually had this text in it. Um, there's others that say, hey, we think that it's better to include this because we, we think the manuscripts that have it are more reliable. Or the manuscripts they had available to them at that time uh, had that and they didn't discover the other ones until later. I said, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this. If you want to talk more about it with me, I'd be happy to talk with you about it later. Um, now, I know that some of this um, can actually be a little bit disturbing if you're hearing it for the first time, to get the idea that's like, wait, I thought that God's word was perfect. I thought we could trust it totally. Now you're telling me that there's like these other manuscripts that have like variations and that kind of stuff. Like, what do I do with that? Okay, well, here, here's what I would say. First off, um, there is no major doctrine in Christianity that's affected by any of these kinds of variations, okay? So yes, we believe that God is perfect and that his word is perfect, but we do understand that it was, it, he transmits that through humans that are imperfect, and so every now and then you are going to have scribes that make mistakes in, in making copies and that kind of thing. The good news is there isn't any major doctrine in Christianity that changes because of this, so uh, take, for example, this passage here in Matthew. If you were to remove this doxology, uh, it may, the prayer might lose a little bit of its richness or its neatness in the way that it's tied up, but we don't miss out on something that it was telling us about God that, nowhere else, that the rest of Scripture doesn't already tell us, right? Like if I remove this idea about this particular part telling me that God owns his kingdom and power and glory forever, I can still find all sorts of stuff in the rest of scripture about that, right? It's not adding in some sort of new doctrine that hinges on this statement. And anytime you find any other variant, it's going to be the same sort of situation. So even if we can't be sure that this sentence is in the original manuscript of Matthew, I believe that it's worth us looking at and considering the truth that it conveys. Um, and I'm going to show this clearly from other scriptures as well that are showing us this exact same idea. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, we see a uh, short statement of praise that David gave that's actually very, very similar to this one that, that Jesus would utter many, many, many years later. In 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11, it says this, so David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So that's a little bit different, but you see it's even conveying all of these same kinds of themes here. 
So with that being said, I do want to spend the rest of our time together this morning looking at what we can learn from this doxology and the way that it closes out the Lord's Prayer. And I see five components in that. First, I see kingdom, I see power, I see glory, the aspect of it being forever, and then the word, amen. So let's look at this idea of kingdom. Uh, In some ways, I, I think you could argue that the essence of this prayer is really about the kingdom of God. Like, this is kind of the the linchpin that I see in the prayer that it's all hinging back towards is desiring this kingdom to come and for God's will uh, to be done. When we have our bread, when we have forgiveness of sin, when we're forgiving others, when we're protected from evil and when we're not falling into temptation, those are all aspects of what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. Right? So I see all of this hinging back. The idea that he's holy and exalted and that we have this uh, relationship with him as our father, that's the reality that we live in with as his kingdom, which is why I would say this is really the essence of what the prayer is about. Now, we need to realize that when we're praying, we are praying to God who is king. However, when we look at our world, in a lot of ways, it doesn't look like our world is under the kingship of God. And I preached on this back earlier towards the beginning of the semester. But there's a lot of sin in this world, right? Like if we were to look at what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, where his will is carried out perfectly, and then we look at our world, it certainly doesn't look very much like that kingdom is here. And we see all of the impact of that sin and the pain that it brings and how messed up everything is. This world is actually in such rebellion against God that we see Satan called by a very interesting term in the scripture. This is the Bible saying this. Satan is actually referred to as the God of this world. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, Satan is at work in this world, and he is blinding people from seeing who God actually is and seeing how they can come to faith in him. Now, this is not to say that Satan is actually a god or that he has any power that is anywhere near comparable to the one true God. But what it is communicating to us is that most of this world, honestly, is living as if Satan is king rather than God. And very few people out there would actually refer to themselves as Satanists. You know, I, I, I very rarely meet a person that says, yeah, I worship Satan, I'm cool with Satan, I like Satan, anything like that. But when you think about it, God has laid out his rule for how things are supposed to be, and Satan is the one that has been in rebellion against him, right? He's been the one that's in rebellion from the start. He's been the first one that tempted Adam and Eve to join the rebellion against him. And to say, no, don't act with God as your king, you try and be your own king. And frankly, that's how most of our world lives, And so even though they may not actually ascribe allegiance to Satan, the reality is they're following his ways more so than the Lord. And so it doesn't seem so far-fetched to refer to Satan as that way, being the God of this world. Now, the good news is that this world is passing away. Look at what 1 John 2.17 says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This world is passing away, but God's kingdom is coming. And this is why Jesus, the first sermon we actually see him preaching is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've talked about this a lot. If you've been here, you've heard us say this constantly. The idea that God's kingdom is already here, but not yet fully here. 
right? When Jesus came, this is why he, he started to bring the kingdom of God in. And this is why you'll notice everywhere Jesus went, he was bringing restoration, right? This is what God's ultimately going to do when we look forward to his kingdom that's coming. We see the curse of sin totally done away with. And, and so what was Jesus doing? When he would come, he was bringing restoration. He was turning people's hearts back to the Lord. You even see him reversing things like healing the blind and, and the lame walking. We see him feeding people. We see all of these kinds of things that, that, that describe the kingdom. Jesus was bringing them with him as he was going along to these places. He brought restoration everywhere he went. And with him, we started to see the undoing of the curse of sin. At the cross, he paid the penalty for our death and sin. And in the resurrection, he showed the new life that he has bought us. And now, as the church in this age, we have the Holy Spirit that's given to us as a gift, where God actually dwells within us and produces his fruit in us, and actually gives us the ability to no longer be slaves to sin, but to choose to walk in righteousness, all by the power of his Spirit, so that we can be people who actually live like citizens of the kingdom of God. And so here we are as people who are caught between the ages. Yes, in a sense, we still live in this world that's passing away. But in another sense, we're already citizens of this new kingdom that we know is, is already here and is yet to come in its fullness. We anticipate the coming of God's perfect kingdom where all sin is done away with and where we don't suffer from its effects anymore. Listen to this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. I know I've shared it with you before, but I want to do it again here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And so guys, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray the way that Jesus is teaching us to pray. He wants us to, preach, to, to pray with this kingdom in mind. Right? We pray for this kingdom to come. And what does he do here in the doxology? He even brings our mind back to this. That the king of this kingdom is the one that we're praying to. And may we be people that, that believe that these words are faithful and true. Because that's what's going to sustain us to continue praying even in times that seem really dark. A lot of the time I think that we let the, the news and the current events and, and all the, the, the messed up stuff of this world dictate our mood and dictate our thoughts about the future more than we let the word of God. And the reality is if we're people that pray to the king, the eternal king, knowing that this kingdom is coming, then we won't lose heart even as we see this world as it continues to pass away and maybe and probably even just gets worse and worse and worse around us. So not only do we see that God owns this kingdom, but we see that he has unlimited power. And that's good news, right? Because kingdoms can only be sustained so long as the king has enough power to protect it, right? History is full of stories about great kingdoms that rise and fall, but none of them ever last forever. Why? Because no king is ever able to live forever. And even if he was, he's never able to keep an army that's able to sustain it forever and ever. Power ebbs and flows in this world. 
but we see that God's power is unlimited. So not only does he have this kingdom, but he's actually able to protect it. How sad would it be if God built this wonderful kingdom that we anticipate, yet he wasn't powerful enough to maintain it, and a rival came along and conquered it? We don't have to worry about that, because our God's power is totally unmatched. If you need proof of this, we can see his power all over the place, right? Just a few places, right? His power was shown at creation. Job, he he says this, uh, he goes on for a long time, but just a select portion of when God's speaking about his power to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Is there anything more impressive than creation? Right? Like, I talk to people sometimes that say, you know, I could believe in God if I could just see a miracle. It's like, Look, we see one every day. Like, we, like we, we really do. I know all of us want to see a blind guy get healed or a dead person raised or something like that, but the reality is, frankly, the most impressive miracle of all is creation, and every single one of us gets to see it every day. And it's a great display of the Lord's power. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know what's incredible about that? Not only does God show his power in creating the universe, but even in sustaining it. It says, in, in him all things hold together. His power was shown in conquering death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. All right, we know about the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're gonna be. We celebrate it every Sunday, but we have a special holiday that we celebrate called Easter coming up here in a couple weeks uh, where that's kind of the main focus of it, right? But Jesus in conquering death, it was actually much more complete than just his own resurrection. Look at what this verse says. It says that he's been raised from the dead, the what? First fruits of those who are asleep, okay? Now, we don't use that language very often. I don't think any of us in here are farmers, so we don't think about first fruits very often. But, but first fruits are exactly what they sound like. They're the first fruits that come out of the field. And, and those fruits are indicative of what else is later to come. And that's actually why it says the first fruits of those who are asleep, Because we see that, yes, we understand that these frail, fleshly bodies that we have are going to die. But Christians are often referred to as being asleep when they die in the scriptures. Why? Because we anticipate our resurrection as well. You see, Jesus in raising from the dead is actually the first fruits. Yes, he rose from the dead, but that that is anticipatory of the great resurrection of his people to live with him for eternity in this coming kingdom. And so Jesus' triumph over death is actually far more complete and far-reaching than we often give him credit for. And finally, his power is going to be shown in judgment. Listen to this from Revelation eleven fifteen to 18. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, 
and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. There is a time coming when God will put all of his enemies under his feet. Satan is not God's equal, okay? He is going to be thrown into the lake of fire of eternal torment. And the reality is, with this, it also says that there, unfortunately, are going to be others that are going to join him there as well. And that's everyone that, that has followed him in this rebellion, that, that's joined Satan and being the God of the world, that's followed his allegiance rather than the Lord's. Now, God offers us pardon. He offers us forgiveness at the cross. But God's judgment will be complete, and his power is unmatched. There's no fighting against it. Whether you like it or not does not change the reality of what's going to happen. And so the best thing that you can do is to prepare yourself and to prepare others for this day that is coming. You see, the power of God uh, gives us hope, though, for the future, that if he's able to overcome this evil, that one day it's actually going to be done away with and it's going to be kept away with for good. And so that gives us hope for the future. And also the power of God not only gives us hope for the future, but hope for today. Because in this prayer, what have we done? We've been taught to ask for the things that we need, our daily bread, our forgiveness, our protection. Well, guess what? God is powerful enough to give all of those things, right? What good does it do to ask someone for bread that has no means of actually being able to provide it? But God in his infinite power shows time and time again that he's able to do this. He fed an entire nation of people with bread from heaven wandering through the wilderness. He fed a crowd of 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves. He certainly has the power to give us what we need. He has the power to give forgiveness. And I preached on this in depth a few weeks ago. But this is an amazing thing, right? Forgiveness, one of the things I was, was trying to get across to you is that it's not free. Like when, when someone forgives, they're, they're taking that debt upon themselves rather than you having to pay it. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross was when he went to the cross, God isn't just saying, I'm gonna turn a blind eye to your sin and I'm gonna act like it never happened. God in his righteousness says, no, I will judge and I will punish all sin. But what Jesus does is he goes and he takes our debt upon him on the cross and he pays for it rather than you. And that's what allows us to be forgiven. He's the only one that could pay that penalty. No one else is rich enough to pay your debt. But praise God that the one that we're praying to for forgiveness is the one that's actually able to offer it because Jesus bought that on the cross and that is the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that if you put your faith in him and ask him for forgiveness, that he will forgive you because he already paid the penalty for your sin. And as we do that, if you truly come to him in faith for forgiveness, part of that is making him the Lord of your life. That goes hand in hand with your repentance. And that's good news because now we enter into a life where we want to walk in close obedience to him. Well, guess what? He has the power to protect us and help us in that too. You see this, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The power to overcome temptation and evil has been shown by many, many Christians throughout the years, especially if you look at the stories of the martyrs. 
And the great news for us is that God gives us armor that we can put on. So not only does he offer us forgiveness, but he offers to guide us to be our shepherd, to suit us up in armor. And are we going to fall and stumble over that? Yes. And everyone I know in my experience still does that. And praise God that he continues to give us grace in that. But also, may we take advantage of the power that he gives us to actually live in righteousness. That he says you're no longer a slave to sin. And that you can leave that life behind you. And guys, that's a lot of what we're trying to do together here as a church is help one another in that endeavor. And so we've seen that our God is a king, that, that, that we are praying to the almighty, eternal king of the universe, that he is matchless in power. And because of that, it only follows that he should receive all the glory, right? That's what kings get, right? Especially powerful kings get glory. Now, <clears throat> glory is a word that we use a lot in church, but I feel like it's something that's actually kind of hard to define. Uh, what exactly is glory? It seems to me like it's almost something that's more easily felt than it is explained. Like you kind of know when someone's getting glory. And oftentimes you know what it feels like to get glory because we are people that chase after it like crazy. I at least know I am. I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I think we're more susceptible to that. Um, <clears throat> but one of my favorite movies is Gladiator uh, with Russell Crowe. And it, it tells the story of a Roman general who uh, basically through a series of unfortunate events ends up becoming a slave and a, a gladiator. Uh, but the beginning of the movie is awesome. It shows this big battle that Maximus, the main character, is, is leading his troops in against these uh, barbarian hordes. And as he ends up winning the battle, the emperor at the time, <clears throat> Marcus Aurelius, has come out to kind of see the end of this campaign that was wrapping up. And there's this really cool scene where Maximus and the emperor have this conversation. The emperor is uh, getting into old age. He knows he's going to be dying soon. And he's kind of a philosopher type guy as well. And he asks Maximus, he's like, what's, what's been the reason why like, we've fought all these wars and, and conquered all these lands and everything? And Maximus responds by saying, for the glory of Rome. And the emperor kind of scoffs actually at, at the answer. It's He's not sold on the fact that it was actually worth doing all of these kind of things to simply expand the glory of Rome, or that Rome is even worthy of the glory that's being brought upon it by subjecting all of these people. You see, even after obtaining all of this, he's left wondering if it was really worth it. So many wars throughout history have been fought for glory. It's amazing to think how many people have killed one another. Just like crazy to obtain glory. It's something that people hunger for so badly that they're willing to literally kill to obtain it. You know, you are probably not someone who's been out fighting wars to try and obtain glory, but I think that we do fight our own wars kind of on a small scale a lot of the time, daily, to try and obtain glory for ourselves. Maybe for you it's, it's through your grades or through your work or through your financial success, your athletic success your beauty, whatever it may be, if you look at your heart, you'll notice that, that you are constantly hungering for this, this praise and this affirmation to come on you. But the reality that I've, I, I've come to see is that you can never get enough of it. It always actually leaves you unsatisfied no matter how much glory you're ever able to obtain. It's like a drug that you need a greater and greater high for. I feel the pull of glory tugging on my heart a lot. I hunger for it, but never once has it actually ever been able to fulfill me. And I think that's by design. 
because I'm designed <clears throat> not to obtain glory, but rather to give glory to God. <clears throat> He's the one that deserves all of it. In uh, Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. You see that the rest of creation gets this idea, and it praises him, right? Look at Revelation. Let's see what the heavenly creatures do. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're having a great time giving glory to the Lord. Even the skies are good at this, right? Like Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, the, the, the final week of his life here, there were, the people were praising him, and the Pharisees were, of course, upset about it because they were glory thieves themselves. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, if they, if they didn't do this, the rocks would cry out. You see, creation is good at, at praising the Lord, giving him glory. May we be like the heavenly creatures, even like the skies or the rocks that are willing to pour forth speech. Because guys, this is what we're designed for. We're, we, don't, we don't handle glory well. We're not, we don't do well when we try to accumulate it for ourselves. We're designed rather to be people that give it to the Lord. Listen to 1 Chronicles 16, 28 to 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Man, this is, this is a great instructional passage for us in showing us how we should give glory to God. First, he says we ascribe it to him. This involves speaking, singing, the kind of things that we were doing here right before I got up here to preach. We're, we're shouting the glory of God. But it doesn't have to be confined to this room. Like, we need to be people that are ascribing glory to God in all kinds of things, right? That I walk outside and I'm able to actually recognize that God is the one who gave me this beautiful sunny day. I can ascribe glory to him for just the goodness of his creation. I can ascribe glory to him every time I sit down to pray before a meal, that it's not just something out of uh, uh, habit or whatever, but it's like, no, God is actually the one that provided this. Praise you, God, for, for bringing forth the produce of the earth, or whatever, however you want to phrase it. God, just, just thank you that you are the one that's able to provide like this. You deserve glory for giving this to me. And not only do we ascribe it with our words, but also he says to bring an offering. Now, back when this was written, there was actually a, a legitimate sacrificial system where all sorts of offerings were brought. Sometimes it was grain or oil, or oftentimes it was even animal sacrifices. Now, we don't live under a sacrificial system anymore, and so the kind of offering that we bring is different from the offerings that David and uh, his compatriots would have brought to the Lord at that time. But listen to the kind of offering that God wants from us here as his new covenant Christian people. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, our sacrifice is not bulls or goats or grain or oil. It's actually a life that's lived for the Lord. It's a living and holy sacrifice and that that is our act of worship. And so not only do we ascribe glory to the Lord with the way that we speak, but we bring forth an offering of praise in the way that we live. 
and that gives him glory because it pleases him and it shows others that he's actually worth living for too. Pursuing our own glory is vanity and it will never be enough, but giving God glory is much more satisfying, which is good because we're going to get to do it for eternity. So hopefully we should get a good start on here, right? Um, okay, so we've talked about kind of the three major components of this doxology about uh, the, the kingdom and the power and the glory, but there's another word in here that I'm really, really thankful for, and it's the word forever, right? I'm thankful that this word is here. We've seen that all these things belong to God, but now we get to learn the duration, and the reality is that they are his forever. Yesterday, there was a group of us that uh, went out and did kind of what we call our silence and solitude day. I try and have this as a regular rhythm in my life a couple times a year uh, where I'll just go out and set aside either like a half day, sometimes it'll be multiple days, whatever, just to, to be with the Lord. And I don't usually have like a strong agenda. It's really just hang out with God and see where, where the day takes me. And so yesterday we, were, uh, we went down to the riverfront parks and just kind of spread all out, all about uh, and I was walking along the river, and there's these historical plaques all along the river on both sides. And I love history, so you know, I'd kind of walk up and I'd read these plaques. And uh, it, it was really cool to um, be coming across these and see all of these, these awesome things that have happened historically here in Cincinnati. I got to read about uh, Daniel Carter Beard. He was the founder of the Boy Scouts of America. I saw his house where he grew up. It's right across the river in northern Kentucky. Um, I saw the, the first brick home, that was a big deal, in northern Kentucky, uh, but it was cool because there were all sorts of like really important people that visited there, including Andrew Jackson, who was the seventh president of the United States. Um, I read about this giant steel processing plant that used to be on the banks of the Ohio River on the Newport side that was really important for helping produce steel for our aircraft in World War I. And it was cool to read about all of these kind of things, but as I was doing this, it dawned on me that this was showing me, man, nothing in this world lasts forever, right? Like even the greatest citizens among us die. The most prosperous businesses eventually close. Even the mightiest churches eventually fade out. We might wish for our best days to last forever, but time marches on ruthlessly. So how sad would it be if God's kingdom finally came in completion, but then it eventually fell? just like every other kingdom of this world. Even worse, what if our perfect king, God, suffered the same fate as every other great king before him, and that he ruled magnificently for a period of time, but then died? Well, praise God that that isn't going to happen. You know, God's eternal nature is so well documented that it's something I think that we don't often think about and that we just kind of take for granted. But it's really something that we should be celebrating. God's eternal kingship gives weight to his promises, too. Like, look at this. Um, Hebrews 13, 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. All right, so we're learning here. Once again, I've talked about this quite a bit. Don't be freaking out about money and provision, that kind of stuff. God promises they'll do that. But look at the, the promise. He says, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. Now, what does that promise mean if God doesn't last forever? Nothing, right? Like, I, I hate those, uh, you see in movies, they always try to make it really dramatic that people, uh, they'll always make some stupid promise, like, uh, I'm never going to leave you, or like, I'm, I, I'm going to come back. It's like, you don't know that. Like, you're probably going to die in the next scene. Like, you, you, 
your promise means nothing because you you don't have the power to make sure that you can complete it. The good news is our God is eternal and unmatched in power. And so when he makes a promise like this, he's actually able to carry it through, unlike the movie characters. All right? Revelation 22, 3 to 5. Listen to this. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. This is talking about the heavenly city. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God saying, hey, his people, us, we're going to get to reign forever and ever with him. So you know how you wish, like people will always pine for the good old days. Oh man, I miss this time. I wish this could have lasted forever. I wish I could be in college forever. All these kind of things. Well, guess what? This kingdom that's coming is so much better than any of your best days have ever been. And the good news is we're going to get to reign with the Lord forever and ever there. This kingdom's not falling. So I'm very thankful for this forever aspect. And then finally, the last word of the prayer is amen. And uh, this is a word that most of us probably use to end our prayers on a regular basis. Um, However, I think that a lot of us would probably have a hard time defining what it means if I asked you. Uh, The word amen is actually a Hebrew word that means truly or so be it. And uh, it's a way of expressing that you agree with the truth of what has been said. Okay, it kind of adds like, an extra emphasis on the end. So be it. Yes, this thing is true. I believe this thing's going to happen. So uh, I'll give you a few examples that we see of this here. Deuteronomy 27 to 26, uh, verse 26. Cursed is anyone who does not fulfill the words of the law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. All right, so here's what God's saying. He's pronouncing, you're cursed if you don't follow this law. And the people are saying what? Amen. So be it. We agree with you. Let that be the way that things work. If people don't follow the law, we agree that that's what should happen. They should be cursed. And as a matter of fact, there's a bunch of them like that in Deuteronomy right before that. Paul ended the book of Galatians with this word. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Right? It's kind of extra emphasis there. Yes, let God's uh, grace of Christ be with you. So be it. Let that happen. John ended the book of Revelation with this word. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Same kind of sentiment Paul had there in Galatians. Anytime, actually, that you see Jesus in Scripture saying, truly, truly, I say to you, there's a lot of times you'll see him do this. What he's actually saying there is, amen, amen, I say to you, right? That's actually the word that he's using there. Um, It's so be it. This is a thing that's faithful and true. You can believe this. Here's an example, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. He's saying, you can trust this. Truly, truly. Amen. Amen. So be it. This is what will happen. If you hear my word, believe him who sent me, you have eternal life. So when we use this word at the end of our prayers, we're expressing with an an extra emphasis, so be it. Let it be. And this is an expression of desire, but it's also an expression of faith, suggesting that we do believe God is going to bring to pass these things that we've been praying for. So as I wrap up this sermon today, uh, along with our whole series that we've been doing on the Lord's Prayer, I want to leave you with a few points of application. Uh, And the first is just that we need to be people that pray like Jesus taught us to. 
right? We've, we've spent a couple months now, I think, at this point, examining how Jesus taught us to pray. Let's be people that employ that. We've learned from the best teacher there is in Jesus. And what I want you to notice here, I, I talked about this earlier, but look how God-centered the prayer is. I think a lot of us, we never learn how to pray very well. And our prayers are always about me, 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 me. God, what can you give me? What can you give me? What can you give me? And once again, that's an aspect of this. But look how God-centered the prayer is. He starts by just exalting the Lord and remembering who he is. And even before we get to any of our requests, he says, God, I want all of your things to be done first. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that should be the, the flavor that encompasses all of our prayers, is that whatever we're asking for, that it would ultimately be in submission to whatever God's will is. And, and that we remember his glory in that. Also, let us marvel in the truth of this prayer, right? Like, we've seen some really cool things about how rich this is, about the fact that God is almighty and so powerful and holy and great, yet at the same time, he offers us the opportunity to become his children, adopting us through the blood of Christ. Like, just, just marvel in that. You know, let, let this be something that blows your mind about how good God is and the kind of life that he has offered to you. He's our Father, if you are a Christian, he cares about you, and this should be a very comforting reality. And finally, let us be people that live in response to the truth of this prayer. If we let this sink into us, we understand that this is actually what God wants and what God desires, then we can be people that live confidently, that we have a God that actually cares about us and wants to take care of us. We can live obediently knowing that he is the true king and that his kingdom is coming, right? If we know that, why in the world would we try to defy him and live like someone else's king, be it yourself or anybody else? Let each of us live as much like that kingdom is here as we can, right? It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. What we want to do as a church, right? Our vision statement even for a church, we would say that we want to see God's eternal kingdom fully realized, we can't do that ourselves, right? God is going to have to be the one that ushers that in. But as his people, he has called us to be people that live as citizens of his kingdom. And the way that we live should be helping this world look just a little bit more every day like the one that's coming. There's so many things that are outside of our control, but within the sphere of our influence, let us be people that live like God is king. Let us be people that, that just bring a little bit of that restoration with us everywhere we go that, that, that is that, that's the aroma of the kingdom of God is bringing restoration. That's where Jesus, that's what he brought everywhere he went with him as the kingdom of God is at hand. So I love you guys. I've had fun preaching through this with you. I hope that this is something um, that will really impact your prayer life for years to come, uh, that you'll be people that really pray with the heart of the Lord for the things that he desires. Van, you guys can come back up as I close this in prayer here. God, we love you, and um, I just, I thank you for prayer. Like, I, I just thank you that you give us this direct line of communication with you. I thank you that I don't have to go to a priest uh, to pray to you. I don't have to have some sort of other mediator, but rather that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. God, I, I thank you for the blood of, of, our, of our perfect mediator that's opened up this line of communication that we can come and speak to you. God, I pray that you would help us to be people uh, that, that pray with this kind of heart and this kind of desire that we've been taught, that we would just want to be lifting up your name, 
that we'd want to be exalting you, God. Let us remember the words of this doxology. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So God, let that be. Amen. We say, so be it, God. We love you. You are worthy of all glory, and we give it to you. We pray that you would receive it as we sing these praises to you. Let us ascribe it with our tongues, but also, God, let us live it as we go about our lives this week. We do pray this in the awesome name of your son, Jesus. Amen.